If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to the book of John. The book of John. We've been working our way through John for a few months now. So if you're visiting or if you're uh, coming in town uh, to try to visit friends, family, loved ones, I want to give you a brief uh, focus on what the Gospel of John is about. A very brief focus. Every part of the Gospel of John is seeking to show one thing, that Jesus himself is God. That he himself is God. That he is one with the Father. He's truly God. He's truly man. And he's come down to rescue us because we could not rescue ourselves. What John proclaims in his letter is that if you believe in this man, if you believe in this Jesus of Nazareth, this guy who keeps claiming to be God and backing it up time and time again, if you believe in him, then as chapter 20 tells us, you'll have eternal life. That is the focus and the purpose of John's gospel. So chapter 9, where we're going to be at today, brings us to a famous story, one that is getting at that main purpose of the gospel of John, but one that can also be preached and emphasized many different ways. It's a story filled with love and compassion and even a hint of sarcasm, which I find myself loving, but ultimately it's a story filled with courageous faith. It's also a story, like so many other interactions that we see in the Gospels of Jesus, that's filled with two things, grace and judgment. Jesus is going to pit these two together and show us in this story how they they fulfill this purpose of the Gospel of John. This morning, we're going to look at the story of Jesus and the man born blind. The blind beggar who was healed physically, but even more than this, he was healed spiritually. So the title of our sermon this morning, as you can see, is A Blind Man Sees and Seeing Men Are Blind. The division of this story is straightforward. We have one overarching truth, one main point, this entire narrative, and two responses that the narrative gives us. So one point, two responses, and we're going to see that these are the only responses that we can have to this story. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for today, this last Sunday of 2019. I'm excited to deliver your word, Father, but I pray that each and every one of us would hear from you this morning, that we would see Christ glorified through your word, and that we would behold him as your one and only Son. It's in your Son's name that we pray. Amen. I'm going to do things a little bit differently on this Sunday, and I'm actually going to give you your main point. So if you're taking notes in the bulletin, I'm going to give you your main point right now, and I'm going to give you the two responses because I want you to be able to see it in the story. Main point. Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus is the light of the world. And when you hear that, you can only have one of two responses, as we'll come to see. Response number one, this light blinds. Or response number two, this light illuminates. This light blinds, or this light illuminates. His light will blind you, or it will cause you to see. It will illuminate you. So let's read the first section together. John chapter 9, verses 1 through 12. As he was passing by, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus answered. This came about so that God's works might be displayed in him. We must do the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. 
After he said these things, he spit on the ground, made some mud from the saliva, and he spread the mud on his eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he left, washed, and came back seeing. His neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar said, isn't this the one who used to sit begging? Some said, he's the one. Others were saying, no, but he looks like him. He kept saying, I'm the one. So they asked him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud. He spread it on my eyes and he told me, go to Siloam and wash. So when I went and washed, I received my sight. Where is he now? They asked. I don't know. Our main point, as I said this morning, is that Jesus is the light of the world. But think with me in this scene. Jesus has just made the most controversial statement up until this point in the Gospel of John, and maybe in the entire book. It's what Jeff covered last week. Chapter 8, verse 58. Before Abraham was, I am. He's just said that he is God himself. And so they want to kill him now, and they pick up stones to do so. And yet his time has not yet come, and he escapes, and he's leaving the temple. And as he leaves the temple, he notices a man. He sees a man that others would typically pass by, a man who is rarely noticed, a man that John tells us has been blind from birth. He has no disability check, no aid to help him week in and week out. No, this man couldn't work. And in that day and age, if you couldn't work, it was hard for your family to pick up any slack and provide for you as well. So he has, like others during this time with varying disabilities, resulted to begging, to cry out for mercy to whoever walks by and to hope that they might be able to give something. And his disciples, they're following him, and they say, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? You see, there is this normal thought in Jewish culture that sin and suffering are closely related. That those who are blind or lame or suffering from some other affliction are doing so because of either their sin in the womb or their parents' sin before they were born. They simply, in this culture, they wanted to see the connection between sin and suffering for everything. But oddly enough, this thought can still be prevalent in our congregations today. So I want to quickly explain to you a proper view of sin and suffering in light of the blind man. The Bible is clear and provides irrefutable evidence to us the fact that there is a traceable consequence of sin. For most suffering, we can often follow a biblical logic to understand why. That is from the effect back to the sin. But what's most troubling for us today is when we cannot make that connection. When the suffering seems to be meaningless when we can't point to something specific. So while we can infer from Scripture that there is a general connection between sin and suffering, Jesus here is making sure to teach them that we don't jump to universalizing particular connections. He tells them, neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus answered. This came about so that God's works might be displayed in him. So what does this tell us? It means that specific sins are not always the cause of our suffering. Genesis 3 and the entrance of sin into our world explains why people get sick or why they get tumors or why we die. The fall explains the occurrence of every bit of sin and suffering in this world, but we cannot always explain why this person at this specific time has the tumor. So I want us to be careful in having this underlying assumption that we can. You do not always get sick when you sin. 
You do not always get sick when you lie. You don't always get sick when you cheat or when you steal or when you covet. You don't always have a bad day when you sin. You don't always get cancer because you sin. That's the Hindu idea of karma, and it is not biblical. And this is what Jesus is telling them. There are connections to sin and suffering in a fallen world where we live today, but it's not always a one-to-one correlation. So he answers, neither this man nor his parents sinned. There's not a connection to that here. But here's the even greater truth, Jesus says. Rather, this came about so that God's works might be displayed in him. You see, what this tells us is that underneath all of it, all the pain, all the suffering, all the sickness, all the despair that we experience in this life is that God is still at work and there is a purpose undergirding it all. We don't serve a God who reacts to things. We serve a God who plans all things. In other words, when he ordains something to happen, he's not at the bottom of all things just reacting to human causes or wishes or desires. He is at the bottom of all things, planning all things with a purpose behind them. So listen to me. 2019 might have been one of the best years of your life, or it very well could have been one of the worst years of your life. In a year's time, I could say the exact same thing about 2020. Life in this world is full of mountaintops and valleys and everything in between. But what doesn't change is that God is at work in this world. He's at work in your life. And the events of your life are not for vain, but have a purpose behind them. Our God plans. He does not react. So Jesus continues, as long as I am in the world, I am. There's that statement in John again, I am the light of the world. This is our main point for the sermon. But think with me here on the timing of this statement. It seems that the Feast of Tabernacles has either ended or is just ending. Pastor Jeff talked about this on Christmas Eve from chapter 8 and how there were these four uh, 75-foot tall pillars with golden bowls at the top with with a flame lit amongst the court of the women. And these flames, these four flames in the city would just light up the entire city. And in chapter 8, Jesus is amongst that. He knows the symbolic meaning behind it. He knows that it's representing the exodus and God leading them out of the wilderness, out of Egypt. And he says, I am the light of the world. Then here in chapter 9, he repeats the same thing to his disciples and to this man. Because the Jews thought, that they already had the light. They thought of themselves as God's people. All their religious regulations and protocols were to help them be more acceptable to God. But none of those traditions, and definitely not their prideful position, would save them from the coming judgment. Jesus proclaims, I am the light, and it is in him that you must believe. So then Jesus, oddly enough, he spits on some dirt, he makes some mud, and he puts it on this guy's eyes. And he tells him to go and wash in the pool of Siloam. Notice first the simplicity of the man's response. There's two things we're going to see, but notice first the simplicity of his response. The text tells us he went and he washed and he came back seeing. There's something there in that simple faith for us to learn. But secondly, notice what is happening in these verses. Read the text closely with me because it's going to set up what comes in the rest of this chapter. In verse 3, Jesus tells us that neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this came about that God's works might be displayed in him. That's verse 3. Then in verse 4, he says that we must do the works of him who sent me, we being him and his disciples and us by by extension. Then in verse 6, Jesus himself makes the mud and he puts it on the man's eyes. So the question comes, who is this man? 
He talks about the works of God uh, being displayed in the blind man. Then he says that we must do these works. Then he himself does the work of healing the blind man. So who is this man? How do we respond to him? Well, this story gives us our responses. And as I said before, these are the only two responses you can have to Jesus being the light of the world. Read with me verses 13 through 34 of chapter 9. Our first response. Verse 13, they brought the man who used to be blind to the Pharisees. I love what John says there. He used to be blind. The day that Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes was a Sabbath. Then the Pharisees asked him again how he received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, he told them. I wash and I can see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God because he doesn't keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, how can a sinful man perform such signs? And there was a division amongst the Pharisees. Again, they asked the blind man, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? He's a prophet, he said. The Jews did not believe this about him, that he was blind and received sight until they summoned the parents of the one who had received his sight. They asked them, is this your son, the one you say was born blind? How then does he now see? Verse 20, we know this is our son and that he was born blind, his parents answered. But we don't know how he now sees, and we don't know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He's of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they were afraid of the Jews, since the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him as the Messiah, he would be banned from the synagogue. This is why his parents said, he's of age. Ask him. Thanks, Mom and Dad. So a second time, they summoned the man who had been born blind and told him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether or not he's a sinner, I don't know. One thing I know, I was blind, and now I can see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? I already told you, he said, and you don't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You don't want to become his disciples too, do you? They ridiculed him. You're that man's disciples, but we're Moses' disciple. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but this man, we don't even know where he's from. Well, this is an amazing thing, the man told them. You don't know where he's from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and and does his will, he listens to him. Throughout history, no one has ever heard of someone opening the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he wouldn't be able to do anything. 34, you were born entirely in sin, they replied, and are trying to teach us. Then they threw him out. Response number one that we see in this passage is that this light blinds. What Jesus has done in this healing is both purposeful and strategic. He is going to confront the Pharisees with exactly who he is, and they are blinded in their sin to see just who that is. In verses 13 through 34, we have these two separate interactions between the blind man and the Pharisees. In the first one, the neighbors bring him to the Pharisees. They need a ruling on what has happened in this healing, so they take him to the religious authorities. And these neighbors, they are familiar with this man. These people didn't move around a ton. They had known and seen him for years. They knew that he was blind. But what has happened to him is astounding to them. Verses 8 and 9 give us this interaction where some are like, it's definitely him, and others are like, nah, it can't be. Isn't this characteristic of people who would have been passing by him daily yet failing to actually notice him? Meanwhile, he's over here saying, yeah, it's me. I was blind. I can see you now. I can see you talking. And they ignored him. So they take him to the Pharisees, those who could deliver a verdict, because as verse 14 tells us, Jesus has done something gravely wrong in their eyes. He's done something on the Sabbath. 
It's most likely two of the oral traditions or oral laws that he has broken. The first is that he has needed something according to the Mishnah. And the Mishnah was just the oral interpretation of the law that the Pharisees ascribed to. You could not do the work of kneading dough on the Sabbath. You had to do that the night before so that you had already had the dough kneaded and baked for you on the Sabbath day. And they could have seen in some measure him making the mud as kneading something on the Sabbath. But secondly, and the main emphasis in this story, is that a healing took place on the Sabbath when a life wasn't in danger. You see, according to the Mishnah again, if somebody's life was in danger on the Sabbath, you couldn't really heal them, but you could do enough to get them to the next day where maybe the next day they could be healed. This is how far their legalism has come. A blind man from birth has just been healed. It's just taken place, and they are concerned about the day that it took place on. They're missing the bigger picture of what was happening in light of a smaller obstacle. This is much like me a few months ago, August 27th to be exact. I remember it so clearly because it was the day that our youngest, Leland, was born. I was actually up here. I was uh, at the office, and I went outside because I was catching up with an old friend from seminary, trying to encourage him in his ministry and just catch up with him. And while I'm talking with him, uh, I noticed this bee flying around. You guys know how it is at the end of August. I noticed this bee flying around. So I take a few steps away. I don't want to get stung. And I just kind of ignore it, hoping that it goes away. I don't see it anymore. Everything is good. Now, I'm in shorts because it's hot. And for those of you who are old like me, you know that every now and then your body starts to hurt. You get aches in your knees or in your back, all right? And so I, my, my, what I result to all the time, I always tell the staff that I should have been a chiropractor in another life because I just like popping things. So I'll pop my back. I'll do an air squat to pop my knees. My knee was hurting as I'm talking with him. And so I do a squat out there. And right when I squat, I feel the sharpest pain in the back of my calf that I've ever felt. Maybe not ever felt, but it felt like it at that moment. And I look down, and there's a bee with its stinger lodged in my calf, like a, like a wing, like fluttering. And so I get it off of me. My buddy is losing it on the phone. I hang up with him. I go inside the office. Nobody has compassion for me there. <laughs> so it's throbbing. I don't think I need surgery. I, I'm good. Well, then about 30 minutes later, my mother-in-law calls me because she's in town and we're expecting a baby anytime. And they say they're taking the kids to the park and Laura had started laboring there and trying to like hold off as long as possible. Now they're back at the house and it's pretty bad. I need to come get her. We need to go to the hospital. So I do just that. And as we're driving to the hospital, she's breathing heavy. She's slightly sweating. She's obviously uncomfortable. She's breaking the fingers in my hand. There's a baby trying to come out of her. And I say something to the effect of, babe, my calf really hurts from that bee speed. <laughs> now, I'm not going to repeat what she said to me word for word. But in a small way, I related to what the Pharisees were doing. I was missing the bigger picture of what was happening for a much smaller obstacle. For me, it was a bee sting. For them, it was the Sabbath. And so John tells us that they bring the man who was formerly blind to the Pharisees. So we have this back and forth between the Pharisees and the blind man. A blind man can now see, and those who think they see turn out to be blind. Notice how the man is put on the spot as if, as if he's the theologian in residence. He's been born blind. He now sees, and they want to know why. Tell us, they say, how were you healed? He put mud on my eyes. He responds, I washed it off, and, and now I can see. 
At this point, there's a division amongst the Pharisees. Some think Jesus can't be from God because he doesn't keep the Sabbath. Others think that he must be from God because who could heal a blind man? Even the blind man knows that this has never been done before. When he says that, he's referencing the Old Testament scriptures. There's not a single recording of a man being born blind, being healed. And so they call in the parents because they can't decide, who know that this is their son, but are fearful of being banned from the synagogue, and they're no help of all, no help at all. You would think that parents who love their son would be rejoicing that he can see alongside of him. So they say, yes, he's our son. We don't know how he was healed. Ask him he's of age. So they bring him back a second time, and this time he's a little irritated, just a little bit more courageous. He knows that he's been healed. And here he is standing before this religious authority, these people who are supposed to know everything, have keen insight into these things, and he realizes that they know nothing at all. Now the point in this section, in response number one, is that the light of Jesus blinds people. But another word for being spiritually blind is unbelief. And there are some characteristics of unbelief in this interaction between the man and the Pharisees. Unbelief is shown to be prideful. They are the religious elite who are supposed to know everything about God, everything about his word. They know the Mishnah. They should be able to interpret it all. They keep talking down to this man as if he knows nothing. They are consumed by pride and unwilling to humble themselves and see their own need for Jesus. Not only is is unbelief prideful, but it's rigid. They are not open to change in their thinking or in their belief. They are so stuck on this issue of the Sabbath that they cannot appreciate a miraculous work of God right in front of them. So unbelief is rigid, but it's also irrational. It's irrational. If someone gives you true facts and you come to the wrong conclusion, that means you're irrational. So they're asking the man again and again, what did he do to you? How were your eyes open? He's already told the crowd. He's told the Pharisees. His parents have confirmed that it is their son and they, that the Pharisees need to listen to him. And now he's tired of the games. He's tired of their irrational hypocrisy. And they're not listening and the sarcasm comes out. Which, as I said, it excites me a little bit. And he says, I already told you and you don't listen. Aren't you boys the theologians? Do you want to be his disciples too? Boom. He did it. Games are over. There is no more listening. It's all confrontational from now on. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to him, to which his sarcastic yet so clear truth rings out. Well, this is an amazing thing. The man told him, you don't know where he's from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he listens to him. Throughout history, no one has ever heard of someone opening the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he wouldn't be able to do anything. This interaction leads us to the last characteristic of unbelief, which is hostility. They are hostile. Unbelief shows itself to be hostile to the things of God. Look at what they say in verse 24. Read it closely. Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. Notice what they're saying there. Give glory to God by acknowledging that Jesus is a sinner. This is blasphemy. Give glory to God while you demonize Jesus. Their hostility to him knows no bounds because their eyes are blind to the very truth that keeps confronting them. This man is not only from God, he is one with God, truly God himself. And their hostility is shown in their response to the man's last remarks. You were born entirely in sin, they replied, and you're going to try to teach us? Then they threw him out. 
This casting out or or throwing out language is strong, and most see it as the banishment from verse 22 that the parents feared. He He has now been excommunicated from the synagogue. As before, he was just an outcast of society, but now the Pharisees have made him an outcast to God in their eyes. Jesus is the light of the world. This light will blind you or it will illuminate you. So let's close out the chapter and see how it illuminates. Chapter 9, verse 35. Jesus heard that they had thrown the man out, and when he found him, he asked, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? He asked. Jesus answered, You have seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. I believe, Lord, he said, and he worshiped him. Jesus said, I came into this world for judgment in order that those who do not see will see and that those who do see will become blind. Some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and asked him, we aren't blind too, are we? If you were blind, Jesus told them, you wouldn't have sin. But now that you say we see, your sin remains. These last few verses serve as a kind of summary and a fitting conclusion to the story. Jesus is clear. At the beginning, I told you that there is grace and there is judgment in this passage. And here we see both of those together. Jesus explicitly says that I have come into this world for judgment, that those who are blind to the things of God may come to see, and that those who think they understand and think they see and think they know will be blinded. We just looked at the response of blindness and God's judgment in response number one, but here we also see grace. What's amazing to see in this man's healing is his progression of faith. Jesus graciously restored his sight. One thing I do know, he tells them, I was blind and now I see. But that statement while speaking to the physical was a foreshadow of what would happen in the spiritual. His eyes have been healed, but even more amazingly, his eyes have been opened to see the glory of Jesus Christ. So look at the progression in the text. All responses to this question of who is this man. In verse 11, the blind man, he just calls him a man. He's the man who healed me. In verse 17, he's a prophet. In verse 33, he says he's a man sent from God. And then in this interaction with Jesus in verse 38, he calls him Lord and worships him. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? He asked. Jesus answered, you have seen him. In fact, he's the one speaking with you. I love that subtle imagery that Jesus uses. A blind man who comes to see Jesus. The man wants to believe in him. He's desiring to do this very thing. He just needs some direction. God has given him faith. He just needs to know who to put that faith in. You have seen him, Jesus says. You've been blind from birth, and now you see him. And the man worships him. This man sees Jesus physically now, but he's also seeing him spiritually as well. His understanding of everything is not perfect. His theology is not airtight, but he now believes in Jesus and he worships him as Lord. Instead of the light blinding him to Jesus as it does to the Pharisees, it is now illuminating Jesus to him. He sees the Son of Man for who he is, and I like to think that he continues to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord. So today we're all confronted by this passage. Last Sunday of 2019, Jesus is the light of the world. We can only have two responses to that light. Has the light illuminated your eyes to see? Illuminated them to see the beauty of Christ above all else? Or do we still think that we see like the Pharisees and are actually afflicted with unbelief? So there's two responses in this story, but we could also say there are two biographies in these people. 
First is that we have that of the Pharisees. Those who think they see, but they're actually blind. They're trapped in their sin because in Jesus, they see nothing to desire. Remember Isaiah's prophecy. Nothing to long for, nothing to want, nothing to put their trust in. That's spiritual blindness. So we need to ask ourselves today, am I blind? Am I spiritually blind? Do I think I see, but I'm blind to who Jesus is and what he's done for me and how my life can never be the same when I see that? Jesus sought this man out. And through the Holy Spirit today, he's seeking you out as well. But the other biography is that of the man. He was blind physically. He was blind spiritually. He was sought by the Lord physically. He was sought by the Lord spiritually. He's given physical sight. He's given spiritual sight. He then testifies about Jesus to the people. His family in some measure forsakes him. He winds up being cast out and hated by those who are enemies to the gospel. Then he cries out, Lord, and worships at the feet of his Savior. He is, in a sense, a picture of what it means to be a Christian, a true worshiper of Jesus. So if that's you today then praise God right now as we come and we sing this last song. Praise God for the miraculous work that he has done in your life and giving you eyes to see and behold the glory of the one and only Son of God. To his name be the glory and honor forevermore. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for your word. And I know this is a busy season. I know many people are traveling. No many people are visiting, but I pray more than anything, if someone is here who did not know you, that you would open their eyes to see the glory of Jesus Christ. And for those of us who you have opened our eyes to see, I pray that you would keep us humble, that you would keep us away from pride, that you would keep us leaning on Jesus and worshiping at the feet of our Savior. We ask these things in your Son's name. Amen.